Since the Industrial Revolution and the advent of fossil fuels in place of manual labor, powering nearly all aspects of civilization, from agriculture to transportation to manufacturing, human productivity and population have exploded, going from under 1 billion in 1750 to a projected population of 10 billion in 2100. In the 20th century, oil became the central resource to command national economies and armies alike, playing a central role in geopolitics to this day. But as the industry faces dwindling reserves and competing alternative technologies in the 21st century, companies like ExxonMobil stand out as an unashamed proponent of hydrocarbons, being America's largest oil and gas company and one of its most profitable. As the primary heir to the standard oil legacy, the company offers a unique glimpse into what America used to be and raises the question of how much longer that can remain the case. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been Hello and welcome back to the myth of the 20th century. It's just us uh, tonight. We've got Hans and Nick for at least a little bit, and we're going to be talking about a company and an industry today and the broader ramifications of what that means for the rest of us. Uh, but the particular uh, company is ExxonMobil, formerly known as Exxon, formerly known as Standard Oil, uh, going way back before they, uh, the government, uh, U.S. government broke it up um, in one of the first uh, antitrust suits, I think, in U.S. history. Uh, but today, it's one of its successor companies, Exxon, uh, which then bought Mobil. Uh, in the 90s, uh, is the largest U.S. oil company. It is also joined by companies like uh, Chevron uh, that uh, is also U.S., but around the world there's many other, and they call them majors. These are companies that do the exploration, production, and then delivery, or I should say processing, then delivery of the oil. But there's multiple stages. And so what differentiates this type of company from a lot of other oil companies is they're vertically integrated from the well head all the way down to the pump at your vehicle or however you're consuming hydrocarbons as they put it. And it's the largest U.S. Uh, uh, oil producer. Uh, it's not the largest in the world if you compare it to some of the uh, national uh, oil production outfits like Saudi Aramco or Rosneft in Russia, or I'm not even sure if the Chinese are um, bigger, but they're, they're very close in size. Uh, they, have, they have a couple of Chinese national companies, but they're a little bit different because they work very closely with 
their governments uh, as opposed to, to some degree, uh, a company like Exxon, which does work with the U.S. government. It, it, it's inevitable. It, it's involved in so many geopolitical areas that it's impossible not to. But uh, it is somewhat uh, known for being very free market relative to a lot of other big companies uh, for what you can expect for a big company. Uh, but like I said, it's it's still an intertwined. And oil politics is a thing. Uh, wars for oil has been a thing. But maybe we can debate tonight whether the Iraq war in particular was because that was a big talking point not too long ago. And I'm a little bit skeptical of it personally. Uh, not that I would necessarily be against the concept, but I think uh, our government is basically just corrupt and inept. And we couldn't even get, uh, as Donald Trump said, a drop of oil out of that whole stupid thing. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought this would be an interesting time also to talk about this company because of obviously where the price of gasoline is and diesel fuel for the average consumer. Uh, it comes amidst a general inflationary trend in the United States uh, and frankly around the world uh, ever since uh, COVID sparked off a lot of uh, effectively money printing that the central banks have been uh, injecting into the monetary systems of the world in an attempt to uh, recharge the economies and then in effect uh, supercharge them to the point where the uh, the lack of supply, uh, despite the increasing money that is in uh, people's hands, is starting to actually do what economists uh, predict is that uh, you're going to have inflation. And so a lot of this is causing uh, general price inflation, but oil in particular, uh, more so than I think even f something like food has gone up uh, more than almost any other consumer good. I think it's doubled roughly, uh, at least at the pump in the past uh, year, year and a half, which is, uh, which is a lot. Uh, it's probably not as bad as what happened during the oil embargoes in the seventies, uh, when the United States backed Israel and then the Arab countries or OPEC through OPEC decided to uh, embargo their oil exports. To well, that the wasn't, States. Uh, that was an OPEC. That that was over the Yom Kippur War, but that wasn't that wasn't the OPEC that we think of. That was uh, the uh, OAPEC, if you will. Oh, was, no, was that the predecessor? Petroleum exporting countries. No, they existed uh, contemporaneously with each other. I see. But um, oh, the, so it, uh, it, it excluded like Venezuela, but it, it was just the Arab ones. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that that's um, that's interesting. I hadn't considered that, but uh, we we all are pretty familiar, I think, with what happened. Because why would Arab why were. would Zog embargo itself? <laughs> well, a lot of people think that was uh, that was actually intentional to get the petrodollar. Who the hell knows? But we, we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. At least I don't at the moment, because there's a lot of other things to to talk about, and many other people have picked the petrodollar to death. And so I encourage anybody who's not familiar with that concept. Check it out. It's it's a relevant uh, thing, and it's still relevant today, but perhaps less so, and perhaps going forward it may not be. Um, but yeah, I thought I thought this company would be an interesting focal point to kind of understand what's going on. Uh, we could try to cover oil in general, but it's just such a huge topic. I mean, where do you start and stop? And so, uh, because this company is announcing pretty. Uh, 
pretty record profits. I was going to say obscene, but you know, if you actually look at their earnings reports, they they do lose money in the down years. So you kind of have to smooth it smooth it out. It's a very cyclical industry. Uh, they don't directly control the price of oil, despite what uh, Huffington Post might have you believe. Um, they're only about two percent of the world's oil production, which is astonishing given how big they are. Uh, they're one, one of the strangest complaints of Exxon and companies like it for a long time now has been that uh, they make too much money. And, and you look at their capital expenditures alone. Oh, it's huge. And the amount of investment in incredibly uh, risky and difficult uh, and rigorous engineering projects, you suddenly understand why they make as much as they do. And uh, it actually helps explain to an extent why Exxon uh, works very well as such a large company. Yeah. Um, because you do need so many departments and need so many specializations and so much coordination of all that uh, and coordination of resource management and allocation. And, you know, suddenly you're you're dealing with, you know, multi-billion dollar projects at a time. Each project Exxon embarks on is a multi-billion dollar project. And multi-year. I mean, they have to plan these things you know, for think, decades. Yeah, yes. If you, you get it wrong, uh, you're down, you're, you're, I mean, they, they do it well, okay? But if you did it wrong... Uh, Correct. You, you could lose uh, tens of billions of dollars. Well, yeah, one of the most, yeah, one of the most, um, uh, one of the greatest misconceptions of, you know, companies like Exxon in the United States uh, and around the world is that this is some kind of oil company. You know, these are the oil barons. This is a this is a highly sophisticated, large engineering organization. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it is effectively a government whose constitution is to engineer and deliver massive, massive infrastructure projects. That's, that's what they. This is this is what they are. <clears throat> and oftentimes, Exxon's involved in indirect infrastructure projects related to the project that you know, whatever, wherever it might be, it could could be stateside, it could be around the world, it could be in the middle of the ocean. You know, they have to interface with governments, as you said. They have to interface with other companies. It's a whole network of subcontractors and and, uh, and, and nonprofits and sort of or oversight groups that they deal with. I mean, suddenly you're looking at you know, a massive, massive organization that delivers on huge, multi-decade long infrastructure engineering projects uh, around the world. Like this is... Uh, probably one of the most uh, powerful organizations for a reason. You know, you, you I, I think that it's one of those strange paradoxes too, where you know people look at um, uh, a lot of our, our major tech companies now, or a lot of the companies that generate uh, <laughs> yeah, billions, I, I think, billions. I think, in I think the technology involved in ExxonMobil dwarfs probably Facebook, yes, Amazon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We well, look at other, other sectors that deliver billions of, of dollars in revenue: management, consulting, marketing, 
you know, consumer goods, cyclical goods, this sort of stuff. And you come to the realization that the amount of investment and expenditures and risk and time horizon involved in all of those operations are incredibly diminutive relative to what companies like Exxon are embarked on. Yeah, and it, it's um, it's important to remember, or at least to to know if you didn't know before that. Like I said, the the Standard Oil Company was the parent uh, predecessor of Exxon, among others, like Chevron. And the days of John D. Rockefeller running essentially what was a monopoly, not only in the United States, but almost the world. I think there was a point in time where the United States alone uh, was producing at least half the world's oil output. And today, I, I cannot imagine it's anything more than 10%, um, probably less. But the Standard Oil Company was a monopoly, and it could control prices because they controlled production. And when you change supply and there's a fixed demand, the price changes accordingly. So you can control prices that way. But when you're a smaller company in a very, very large and very important global marketplace that has a bazillion components to it that you don't control and also has a fairly large black market. I mean, what do you think Iran and China are doing? Like they're basically, you know, selling each other stuff uh, outside of the U.S. Uh, global empire. Uh, it's to them, it's not a black market, of course. But it, my point is that you can't control these massive oil fields uh, outside of the United States. Exxon certainly can't, and they they try, and and sometimes they they get to the point where their their workers are kidnapped and held for ransom in places like Africa because it's it's so tenuous their influence and control in places like that. So it's not like the the days when Rockefeller really was a baron of of the industry. Um, Exxon is. I would say a very competitive company in in the good sense that it is rewarded because it's efficient uh, and it's smart. Uh, it's may not, maybe not you know, ethical. That that could be you know something we talk about. That's the, something that a lot of people have criticized it for. It's basically a environmentally unfriendly company. Uh, but I would and, and add it, you know, it's, it's very quickly compared to what of... you know. There's well, other it's been companies involved that, in lots of yeah. like, geopolitical instability. Uh, I think the old accusation is coups and uh, yeah, but all all oil companies. Takeovers. I mean, Iran, yeah, yeah. for example, the Iranian Revolution was partly a result of the interference of the the British in the Iranian oil fields, uh, and then their assassination of I think his name was uh, Mossadegh. Uh, because that's, go ahead that's the origin story of british petroleum yeah yeah so it's a, I mean, it's a dirty industry a it's a very dirty subject. industry and it hans mentioned that they that you can't really think of it in terms of them just producing oil and i would say we i don't think we can do justice to the history of standard oil and the rockefeller oligarchic dynasty but I can say that 
you can't really understand 20th century America without understanding the absolute transformation that Standard Oil and, and Rockefeller had on. I mean, everything from agriculture, pharmaceuticals. pharmaceuticals. Yep. I mean, an American, an American is essentially uh, a constituent. Like, in order to create an American, basically, you need, at the very least, uh, petrol. Uh, grain-based spirits and television and these things all work together it's not i don't think we're going to be able to to cover all of this but hans also mentioned a major complaint and that's that he said that well people complain that they make too much money but i actually have been seeing another complaint recently and adam and i both watched the cnbc documentary and too much money is a predictable complaint, but the strange complaint is not too much money. The strange complaint is they produce too much oil. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, again, two percent or something of the world's total, and you know, if they produced more oil, uh, prices arguably would go down, which other people complain about. I mean, it, it's 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 important to remember that when people complain and they're really loud. Sometimes the volume at which they're complaining overcompensates for the fact that they're actually not a majority of the population. And I think the the environmental stuff is, I think, a good example of that. I, I, I assume that the, the reason they think they produce too much oil is because oil is bad for the environment. Is that, is that the main reason why, Nick? Yeah, that's what they say in the they they're interviewing the like the CEO and other various engineers and people and the they're asking them, well, what are you going to do to because both this company uh, and similar to uh, well, it's no longer Royal Dutch Shell now it's just Shell I believe and that's a relatively recent development. They both uh, in Shell's case I know it was a court order, and they're pledged to be you know, meet certain emission levels by 2030. And I believe in both cases, uh, ExxonMobil and Shell have made some kind of, some kind of like pledge, you know, yeah. to uh, have net, net neutral emissions. Well, and they're also interviewing them about, well, what can you do to convert all of this infrastructure into basically something it wasn't designed to do? Yeah. Since it's all designed to, produce oil and transport oil all right so one one quick thing Control about the the net neutrality of oil i have not actually looked into this because i think it it, it actually be kind of a unnecessary but i could be wrong if somebody wants to correct me but my understanding of what net neutral on it's basically carbon everybody's complaining about means is that what they're going to do is they're going to offset the emissions that they generate in their business it has nothing to do with what they sell to customers because if you were to offset that i don't think the company would survive uh the cost of sequestering the carbon that comes out of every gas gas engine that burns exxon mobile fuel uh would be basically uh impossible unless you paid them a uh, hundred dollars a gallon i mean i you know maybe it's less but my point is that what they're doing and i I, I'm not even going to weigh in on whether I think this is too much or too little. I just wanted to clarify in case anybody is not sure what this means. It doesn't mean that the oil that they sell that's then burned 
is offset. I don't. I, I just don't think that's realistically economically feasible at current prices. But what I think they can do, and what they talked about in that documentary, or uh, sort of adverti- corporate advertising slash interview, whatever you want to call it. Uh, as long slash as you understand that, you know, yeah, just just understand what it is. But I mean, nonetheless, it's an inside look and full access, relatively speaking, which which is useful. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to believe everything they say, but they're they're speaking their um, their interest, and in, of course, right. But they also interview some of the more uh, critical people of the of the company and the industry in general. So it's not a bad doc- documentary, in my opinion. But what what it what it is is not the oil they sell; it's their production operations. And to do that, they do have to burn a lot or use a lot of energy, and a lot of that is fossil fuel based. And so, effectively, when they drill for oil, that takes a lot of energy to just run the machinery. But also, what you typically get when you pull up oil out of the ground is natural gas and because the equipment is not necessarily designed to capture it when you're focused on oil uh, it's not officially set up to capture the natural gas that sort of bleeds off and is not the primary uh, emission uh, in terms of energy content what they do is they burn it and they flare it and actually uh, some people may not know this uh, something i learned a few years ago but the natural gas is basically methane and when you release methane, uh, some people may dispute this, but I, I don't know if it's really disputable if you actually just put methane and compare it to carbon dioxide, put them in two boxes and you shine the same light on it, you'll notice that the methane will retain heat about 30 times more effectively than carbon dioxide. So in essence, if you're worried about the greenhouse effect and climate change, it's not necessarily carbon dioxide you're worried about. It's, it's really the greenhouse effect, ultimately. Uh, what you should do, instead of releasing the gas in its natural state, you should burn it. And that's what a lot of those gas flare stacks are when you look at oil production rigs in the ocean or on land. It doesn't matter, really. But a lot of times it's on the, on the ocean. They have these big um, spires that come up, and you see these flames jetting out. And as a kid, I was always like, why are they burning that? They should just you know, keep it. And actually some of them are actually converting to that now, but a long time ago, it just, it didn't make sense. I mean, the stuff was not plentiful enough to set up the equipment to capture it economically. And it was just sort of like a, just sort of waste. And so you just get rid of it actually more environmentally, uh, responsibly by burning it. But that's what they're talking about when they're talking about being net neutral. They're trying to stop flaring it, capture it, and then they are having to offset some of you know the trucks that they have to drive and the machinery and the rigs and the diesel generators for electricity, et cetera, on all the different uh, production platforms and, um, and refineries. Uh, what they're doing is they're sequestering the carbon dioxide. And there's many different ways to do that. Um, the most expensive, I, I believe, way to do it is basically take it after it's leaked into the atmosphere and so you have to have these really complex chemical processes. Uh, I want to call them scrubbers, but that's a term that I learned when the uh, coal companies were under a lot of scrutiny about scrubbing their emissions. And so I know coal companies are actually trying to do the same thing in terms of sequestering CO2 from their, um, well, I should say coal power plants, not coal com- coal companies. That's too broad. There could be mining operations in, in that as well. But uh, so they're sequestering this carbon, and typically the way to do that is you pressurize it, 
and you liquefy it and you inject it into the earth. And I'm not too privy on the numbers of that, but I, I got to imagine there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of chilling. And whenever you have to do that without any leaks, there's got to be a lot of very good uh, welding crews and engineers designing this whole thing. So it doesn't get, uh, get messed up and defeat the whole point. So they're, I think they're pumping some of this stuff into uh, underneath Houston. They kept talking about the Houston hub. I should have looked up exactly what that was because Houston is a huge, uh, it's actually, I think like one of the busiest, if not the busiest uh, freight uh, points of uh, transport in the United States. If you include not the uh, container vessels, but just bulk freight, which includes agriculture and uh, energy, they're, they're a massive uh massive operation. And so they're, they're doing something down there for that, but just, just trying to explain kind of what I think that means. I think it's important for people to understand. Um, if you're, if you're buying their gas though, they're, they're not gonna, they're not gonna offset whatever, whatever it is. And, and I think that's another point. It's like everybody like wants a convenient scapegoat, but okay. If, if you're criticizing a company like this, uh, do you realize not only the gasoline that you probably bought for your vehicle, unless you're in one of these electric people, um, is what you're actually doing too, uh, but also the, the plastic in your, your electronics, uh, the plastics in your plumbing, by the way, um, you know, modern day plumbing is primarily plastic. Uh, that all comes from oil. And so everybody who criticizes these companies, really should remember that they're part of that ecosystem also. And some, to some degrees or, you know, more degrees or less degrees, depending on the person, obviously, but, uh, oil is very essential to many, 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 uh, subsidiary and downstream products. It's not just for energy. It's also for plastics. Uh, it, goes, it does go into pharmaceuticals, some of these things. It's basically, as the CEO in that documentary mentioned, what they're good at is processing and delivering hydrocarbons at a reasonable price. And that's hard. Um, if you've ever, um, I, I remind myself of this because when I do manual labor, for example, there is um, a huge difference when you're, let's take a pick and shovel, you're digging a hole. There's a huge difference between the time it takes to do that by hand versus the time it takes for a machine to do it. And we're talking almost a hundred to one in terms of the, the slowness of a human versus a machine. And those diesel engines, which come from oil, uh, the, the energy comes from oil, um, are so powerful that our roads couldn't be built. Our buildings couldn't be built. The steel and the buildings, uh, the food that's, that's harvested and delivered to us couldn't be harvested. All these things depend on energy and to do it your, yourself by hand. I mean, we're talking, uh, well, this is the reason people had huge families, you know, back in the day and governments encouraged population growth because there was so much necessary manual labor to get anything, even the smallest things done without something that is uh, as powerful as a, uh, a can of diesel. And I had the numbers, uh, on one of our shows, we actually focused on energy 
about what uh, diesel is. I think it's like 127,000 BTUs, something insane like that. Um, in order to to do that by hand, again, it's just, it's like 100 to 1. It's crazy. And even now, with $5, $6 gas, depending on where you live in the United States, try to do the work that your your car does going down the highway uh, for less than that, that price. So when people criticize these companies for making too much money. They do make a lot, but they also do a lot as Han said. And if they made less, they probably wouldn't be investing as much in infrastructure and efficiencies and all these types of things because incentives matter. And nonetheless, the value that you get, it speaks for itself. People are still buying gas because we couldn't live our modern day society without this stuff. So I'm not trying to shill for any one company here, but I think people really take for granted what what energy and what cheap energy in particular does for for society. I mean, it's more complicated even than that. We can get to the political dimensions of this whenever you'd like it. Yeah, anytime. I'm happy to do it because I have a lot to say about it. But yeah. the fact is, like, these are really unserious people, and they have another agenda because the America, yeah. as I said, like. Americans, you pour you pour the black gold on the ground, and that's where Americans sprout up from. I mean, the continent, the whole whole way this this continent, you know, under post-industrial and twentieth century, how it was developed is developed based on petroleum. I mean, the way sit everything from how cities are planned yeah. to how agriculture is done, everything it's it's fueled by petroleum. And when people just say it's funny in that documentary, you have them being like, "Well, why don't you just, why don't you just reinvent the wheel? Why don't you, why don't you just do something different?" I mean, well, so why don't they do it? I mean, America should. <laughs> you be. know, if it's so easy, you know, that's the fucking annoying thing about that. Well, to me, the thing like, is, we don't we don't live. You use you use the S word, and that's you know, I try to avoid that. Did I say it? The, the fact oh, is, okay. these are people who are looking. <laughs> use the S word, yeah. Uh, no, sorry people <laughs> like this one. isn't about like the other s word that kind of goes with the solutions these aren't things that are being sincerely pursued yeah. before i open the box of my my sort of overall take on this stuff yeah um did you want to get a little bit more into the specifics of the kinds of operations yeah 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 so I'll, 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 I'll do the the, the nerd hour, the nerd hour stuff while Hans is still here, and uh, I include myself in that by the way. And then Nick and uh, no, we we actually the... lost Hans. Oh, okay. All right. Well, it's you know, it's a school night, as they say. Uh, that's cool. Well, uh, we'll 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 meet again um, on another show. But uh, let me let me just give a couple other I think critical things for people to know or at least recognize. Uh, in understanding and trying to evaluate this industry and this company in particular. Um, I was mentioning manual labor before, and Nick was talking about people who criticize, you know, oil and the usage of oil. And, and Nick was also mentioning that, you know, our infrastructure is, is built around oil. And, and all of that is, is true, um, but it wasn't always true. It's the fish criticizing the ocean. Kind of. Uh, I'm not saying you're doing that, but but people who don't quite, I think they take for granted basically what, what this stuff does. We weren't always dependent on oil. Uh, in, in fact, people used to think it was uh, actually kind of a uh, 
an inconvenience, you know, when they're trying to plant, you know, corn or something like some of this stuff would actually come up in the ground. I mean, literally back in the day, like when this stuff had not been exploited and, uh, pulled up for energy people didn't know what to do mining, with it mining operations it was a major inconvenience yeah it's it's flammable and it's it's sticky and gets in the way and um so what what does this do for us well it doesn't take that long back in history to compare what it was like before oil um i think uh the simplest equivalent for i think most people to fathom is you know the car uh well when it was first introduced was called the horseless carriage uh so what does that imply well before the horseless carriage you had horses pulling your carriage or you just ride them yourself or also you would use them for a beast of burden and among other beasts uh such as oxen and uh, animals like that um but what did it require in order to have horses, which, by the way, are very slow and uh, sometimes they're irritable and they'll disagree with you and go the wrong way or run away or get stolen or or die of starvation or thirst? I mean, there's a million problems with having horses. And if you actually if you look at uh, people who have horses today, with a few exceptions, perhaps in ranching or something like that, where it's an actual family business, the majority of people who own horses are wealthy and they're pets. They're not actually useful in an economic sense because they're expensive. They, and here's a good number, I think to help people and help me because I had to look this up, uh, understand really the resources you need to even keep one horse in one year. And this obviously varies depending on the arability of your soil. But on average, let's just say in the United States, uh, you're going to need about four acres to feed that animal. And that's just for them to survive. Um, If you were to actually work that animal, uh, you're probably talking about 12 acres of land. Now, what is the average... uh, plot size or lot size of an American household. I don't have the number in front of me, but I recall roughly it's about a quarter of an acre. So we're talking about 16 times that just to keep one animal alive. And probably most people don't know what to do with the, uh, the animal, even if they had one. And so then you got to know how to ride it, train it, break it in. Uh, then you got to have that land just sitting there doing nothing basically uh, just to keep this one horse. And then what can you do with the horse? Well, you can go down, down the street and then maybe over the hill. And then you got to figure out how you're going to feed this thing again. And then guess what? None of the infrastructure for that exists anymore. Well, it used to, but uh, what happened was the oil that was discovered made most of these animals really relatively, basically just, they, they were out, um, they were undercut in price. They were so relatively inconvenient and expensive and took so many resources compared to this stuff that they, they went by the wayside. And I mentioned how fast they are. Well, in order to uh, transport information back in the day, they had something called the Pony Express. Uh, and yes, the telegraph was something that came along. And as the railroad also came along, uh, which, by the way, used a uh, fossil fuel to to power it, which was typically coal. Um, but 
the time it took, I think, for a horse to get across the country was measured in months. <laughs> I mean, compared to a, a car, it might, might take you a week, I guess, uh, if you literally had to drive it now. But in terms of like the mail, obviously, you know, once you've got electronic means, you don't need letters necessarily as much. But goods don't have that luxury. You can't you can't send a, an iPhone over the internet. Uh, you know, maybe someday we'll have uh, replicators, but it's not not here yet. So you got to have trucks moving that stuff. And so I'm just trying to give another illustration and some actual hard numbers of what this would take. Let me give you another number. Um, so the energy requirements, uh, just for I believe it's just for transportation. Uh, it doesn't include power generation, but just for transportation, uh, and I think that includes aircraft and uh, ships, but majority of it is cars. I think most people would know that. Um, in order to have the equivalent amount of ethanol uh, grown, which you can grow in the United States, uh, and then given to uh, the refineries and then put into the gas pumps, uh, for your, your vehicles, you would need to take half of the current land that is set aside for most of it is still food production and dedicate that solely to ethanol. And the United States is a uh, food, um, food surplus, uh, in terms of like what it produces versus what it consumes. So there, there's more produced here than what it consumes, but uh, guess what? Here's another thing that, uh, requires, uh, oil, it's or natural gas at least. It is uh, fertilizer, uh, and then also the planting and harvesting of all those all those uh, seed crops, uh, and then also managing your ranch. You've got to have energy, and so all of that would would have to either go away, and then we'd have to uh, basically stop exporting food and probably cut our calorie intake by half. Uh, we we could drive on ethanol. Um, but ethanol has a, a big problem in it in that there's been some pretty well done. I, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent there, but I, I'm going to say I'm more than 50% there on agreeing with them in that ethanol is actually net energy negative. Um, and what that means is basically, uh, well, let's compare it to oil. For example, oil back in the day when it was like really easy to get, uh, you could pull out a barrel of oil out of, let's say, Texas, uh, somewhere in the middle of Texas. You'd have to even go offshore for it, but just like right there, some guy's old uh, cattle ranch. He just turned into an, an oil uh, oil company. Uh, you've got forty five barrels of oil, an energy equivalent, coming out for every barrel of energy equivalent you have to put in to get that oil out. So obviously you're not necessarily using just oil and the energy, obviously of, uh, you know, crews of people. And then you probably have, uh, electricity at some point, but in the 1940s, let's say it was about, uh, 45 to one. So your, your net return, your energy return was 45 to one. That's a pretty good return. So you're, you're getting 45 back for every one you put in today. I think it's down to about five to one. So that's a, you know, nine, you know, one over nine drop, uh, or it's, it's equivalent to one ninth, the, uh, the return, which sucks. Um, it's, it's almost a 90% decrease in 
your energy uh, efficiency. You're still positive though, which is good. Ethanol, <laughs> which Exxon in this documentary it didn't cite by name, probably because it knows that ethanol is actually not a very economic uh, operation. Um, but they mentioned biofuels, which is interesting in theory. There, there's other cellulosic ethanols uh, as opposed to corn-based ethanols or, or even the sugarcane ethanols that they do in Brazil, which actually are energy uh, positive in terms of the output versus the input. But the corn-based ethanol, which the United States um, produces more than I think anybody else in the world, is I think 1 to 1 to 1. 1.1. So what that means is you're getting one unit of energy out or one barrel of, of oil equivalent out for every 1.1 barrel you put in. And that's a negative return. So you're getting less than you put in. Um, and how do they explain that? Um, well, basically there's these big refineries. Obviously there's the farmers too that have to grow this stuff, put you know the fertilizer down, harvest it. And then what they're doing in these uh, distilleries, which is literally what, the, what, what they are is it's just, uh, it's, it's a still you have, uh, just like you make alcohol, you're making grain alcohol and you put, um, you put this mash that bacteria then digest and then they, they release grain alcohol. And then what you do is you, you heat it up to the boiling temperature of the alcohol that, uh, separates it from, I guess, whatever water they put in, uh, and then, and water has a higher boiling point, and so it stays below, and then the alcohol evaporates uh, up into a distillation column. And then what they do is that they cool that column, and then it just drips off, just like any alcohol still. I mean, moonshiners have known how to do this for years. But the the difference is they're not drinking it for pleasure; they're drinking it for profit, and they do make profits, but it's heavily subsidized. So some of that is because the government gives them money, basically. But the, the real nail in the coffin, in my opinion, is that energy uh, equation. They're losing energy for this process. So even if you wanted to make all this, um, all these cars run on ethanol, you would basically have to find that amount of energy uh, and then some in order to do it. And you'd have to get that from somewhere else. So it'd have to be from solar or wind or nuclear, which we might have time to talk about. But you're basically having to figure out your energy problem with something else still. So it hasn't really addressed fundamentally why this stuff is even used in the first place. It, it really is to deliver energy. It's not to deliver pollution or uh, hurting baby seals on the shores of Alaska. It, it really is to deliver energy. Um, and uh, I have defended ethanol to some degree on previous shows. Um, but what I said then was it wasn't necessarily about the economics of it. It was more uh, regarding the energy independence aspect of it. And to be honest, that really probably should only be uh, confined to maybe 10% of the sector for really critical applications uh, even if you have to spend more energy, you can source them from renewables uh, and alternative sources. But the fact remains that sometimes you do need uh, chemical fuels. You need to fly airplanes. You can't do those with batteries today. The batteries are, are too heavy, basically. Um, you you need chemical fuels for long distance travel, such as uh, diesel diesel trucks and diesel locomotives. And also you need fuel for the military. And so those are, I think, reasonable reasons to keep a, a domestic supply of uh, hydrocarbon-based fuels, 
but only to a small amount. I don't think the amount that we're getting into at this point is, is probably wise. Uh, okay. So th- those are actually, that's more economics. Um, I don't know if I should go into too much of the operational stuff. Let me just do it real high level. And then, I mean, a lot of this, I'm sure most people or some people at least know, but for those that don't, um, to get uh, gasoline, for example, or diesel, which most people are familiar with, uh, delivered to you, what you have to do is what uh, part of what I just described. If you go back to the previous step, uh, I guess before the delivery of that uh, refined uh, refined fuel, uh, it, it has to be distilled at a refinery. And so in order to get the, the various grades and blends of the distillates they call it, of crude oil you put crude oil into these uh these really tall heaters and they have these distillation columns that are above them and this actually technology was just developed right when rockefeller was was discovering all this stuff and buying up all these companies he wasn't the person who discovered oil by the way it was uh in i think it was titusville pennsylvania where they they had the big first gusher uh, but he was the first to really become a, a big operator uh, in the world and and seize upon this uh, as as a business. Um, but in any case, th- this uh, the, the concept of chemical engineering actually came out of the oil industry. That, that's where it came from. It was basically taking these crude oil products primarily and then trying to crack them um, in these big distillation facilities. And, and, and well, first step is cracking it. So basically boiling the crap out of it, heating it up such that the hydrocarbon chains, those molecules break apart and that's the cracking. And then once they uh, evaporate from the crude oil, the, the sludgy stuff, they then go through various distillation levels where different cooling and uh, condensation points allow all the different derivatives of oil to come off in this tall column. So the lower ones, uh, they have, um, I'm trying, I don't want to get this wrong, but they have a different, (laughs) different, uh, condensation temperature than the higher ones. And so what you get out of that is you get things like kerosene, which originally was used for, uh, lighting actually, which is what standard oil focused on. Then it got into transportation once the internal combustion engine was developed, uh, and then companies like Ford started churning out enough vehicles for them to focus on that. But originally kerosene was for lighting, but now uh, it goes more towards uh, jet fuel, uh, but it's still around. And then you have gasoline, you have diesel, uh, you have a bunker fuel, which is the, the stuff that actually pushes um, or moves the engines uh, primarily uh, for the, the shipping fleets of the world, which is actually incredibly polluting, by the way, uh, mainly because they're not heavily regulated in international waters. Um, and then there's, there's some others I'm sure I'm forgetting, but, uh, that's, that's the, the intermediate process before that you have to obviously deliver oil to these refining systems. And a lot of that is done, uh, through pipelines. Uh, most, most refineries are not located to the, are located near where the production is though, because the production today, especially is just so far flung around the world that you have to move it to where these big facilities are. And these big, big facilities are expensive. And so you can't, you can't just build them everywhere. You have to kind of strategically locate them at points where transportation costs are relatively modest and you don't have uh, people complaining about the, uh, the looks and some of the pollution that comes off of them. 
So they're typically located in places like Houston, which have historically a lot of oil, but also are have access to the shipping channels and the Gulf of Mexico. So it's a it's a logical place or something like that. But before that, the oil is transported to them. And so these big tanker ships, which Exxon actually became very infamous for, for crashing in 1989 with the Exxon Valdez uh, spill in Alaska, um, which, by the way, um, which was which is a horrible um, contamination of the uh, the water in Alaska, uh, and the number was uh, I wrote this down. It was uh, two hundred and fifty thousand barrels, approximately, which is effectively I think what was in the 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 tanker vessel. Uh, so that that thing cracked apart and basically dumped its oil. Um, that was eclipsed by more than twenty times, though. Uh, not too long ago with the deep water horizon, uh, oil, oil spill. Yeah. In the Gulf, which was uh, British petroleum. And that was worse because it wasn't just a fixed amount of oil that was in one vessel that, that, that spilled. It was basically an entire well <laughs> that was just dumped, dumping into the ocean. And it was, uh, that, that was, that was such a disaster. And that was uh, 5 million barrels. Um, so these things are, are, you know, very difficult, uh, to, to do, and they're very dangerous if you do it wrong. Uh, but the transportation comes from places like those, uh, those production rigs, which are in places like the Gulf of Mexico. But honestly, the, the fact that we're even drilling to the depths that we're doing, I think should tell people something that the easy oil is, is gone, at least in the United States. Um, the United States used to be the biggest oil consumer in the world. It's now been passed by China. I think that's been true for at least five years, possibly 10. Um, but the United States actually has declined in the amount of, uh, fuel or gasoline it's consumed over the past 10 years, believe it or not. Um, even though we've had a rising population, which I think is to some degree, uh, a credit of the Americans, uh, willingness to try to reduce their energy consumption. Um, but it is, uh, it is also, you know, partly because the prices have gone up and also partly because we've deindustrialized so much. And, uh, also one more fact about oil consumption comparisons, the, uh, the United States used to be the big, you know, everybody in the world, Oh my God, the America, you know, pollutes so much. Uh, it does, uh, it's certainly up there, but believe it or not, and I don't really think it's hard to believe this, but the United States was not the biggest consumer per capita of energy, uh, or even oil, uh, I believe, uh, the champions of those, um, or that was, uh, places like Canada, which has a much colder climate than the average climate of the United States, uh, places like Sweden even, uh, but that actually in Sweden, that number comes primarily from energy consumed. It's not actually from oil. Uh, a lot of their energy is uh, powered from very clean, relatively speaking, sources like nuclear power and hydroelectric power. Uh, and so that number might be confusing if you're just looking at energies um, as well. But some of the biggest polluters, and it, again, it, it makes some sense, are actually the oil producing states uh, in the Arab world uh, because again, this gets to the comparisons of like where the easy oil is. Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, to some degree, um, Kuwait, Qatar, uh, in particular, uh, natural gas for Qatar, 
Uh, I think the UAE still has some, but it's pivoted to all these other businesses, which is probably clever and, and wise to do that. Uh, but those those countries, their costs, uh, they used to call it lifting costs for getting barrel uh, barrels of oil out of the ground. Uh, if you take a, a wellhead in a place like the Gulf of Mexico, it might cost uh, maybe 40 to $50 a barrel to pull that out, out of the ground and get it to market. Um, and the prevailing rate at, at the moment is maybe $100 a barrel, so it's profitable to, for them to do that. But in places like Saudi Arabia, where they're literally sitting on an old ocean bed that doesn't have any trees, it has relatively few rocks on it, it just has a bunch of sand on it, and you drill down not that far, and you're, you're getting a, a giant amount of oil coming up. Um, the cost for getting that out of the ground, I think, is something like 5 to $10. So they have a huge cost advantage. And one of the policies of the Arab world... With respect to that... So Exxon has, in North America, been pivoting a lot to the uh, Permian Basin. Yeah, Which I suppose is... You you need some of the Texas and New Mexico. And you need some of these newer technologies in order to access that, like uh, hydraulic fracking, fracking and yeah, fracking. what do they call slant, uh, slant drilling? Yeah. Whenever I hear slant drilling, I, I think of that scene from uh, There Will Be Blood with the milkshake. Yeah, I was uh, I was thinking about that movie the other day. Um, I think, historically speaking, that term slant drilling probably literally means they're going diagonally. But what, what is crazier about fracking is that what they do is they go down vertically first and then they've designed, if we ever get around to Howard Hughes, you know, it should be known that Howard Hughes really was only possible because his dad got rich selling drill bits in Houston to the oil industry. Uh, and so what they've developed since then was not only do they send down, like if you ever have to drill like a well for water, it's the same concept. You're basically, you, you put a big rig on the top of the the earth and then you have, um, you have a drill bit hooked up to a big pipe and that pipe has a, has a gear gear system on it so that it spins. And then the bit on the bottom cuts, cuts into the ground like an auger. And then it, it, it's pushed down and also it's pulling up earth while it's doing that. And then you, you lower it down. And then if you need to go lower, you put another pipe on it and you keep going, add another pipe, keep going, add another pipe. Well, that is, uh, that is hard enough as it is, but imagine doing that, going down two miles, something insane like that. That's I think, you know, roughly numbers I've heard before. And then you're not, you're not just putting a pipe down. You're then, Two miles down, I mean, remember, this is just a hole that you have, like, you can't even see anymore. Uh, You're having that pivot 90 degrees to the side. Just the the sheer engineering required to design some kind of gearing mechanism to then poke sideways two miles under the earth, pull out the crap that is a result of drilling, which is basically done by high, high uh, pressurized water typically. Uh, Cause you can't mechanically remove that. I mean, unless you had like a tiny, you know, army of gnomes to like climb down this pipe for you and haul it up the, the two miles that they crawl down to get it. You basically use um, water and that's, that's also, um, 
used to to break up the rock formations as well as you're going along these side formations. Um, so it's just insane. And it, it's like, it was kind of an American, I, I think it was primarily American, if not solely American technology that this uh, even became possible because what they were realizing was, you know, if you go to places like um, Kern County in California, where it used to, it still has oil, but um, what was the one flew, flew over the cuckoo's nest. There's a scene where Jack Nicholson is like an oil worker. He's in California yes. of all places, kind of, you know, weird. If you, if you know how uh, environmental crazy they are these days, but back in the day, California used to be a big oil producer. Well, it got to the point where one, the environmentalists complained and then two, the economics didn't make uh, as much sense anymore. So they just stopped drilling there. So they had to go to weirder and weirder places offshore. There was a spill in Monterey, California, I believe, where they were drilling out there. Then they've gone to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even there, it started running out. So you they, know, that wasn't even the only movie where Jack Nicholson played an oil man. What were the other five ones? Five easy pieces where he was a former concert pianist. Well, in Five Easy Pieces, he was a concert pianist who gave up playing the piano and was working as an oil man in okay. Texas. I can't remember if that's the movie I'm thinking of, but there, there was, yeah, I, I think it is. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it is Five Easy Pieces. Movie. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to defer to Nick on yeah. this one because he knows cinema better than me. But I could have um, just missed that detail. I just had a, I just had an image of him in the hard hat on the freeway. Whatever movie that was, that's 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 what I'm thinking of. But yeah, that was, that was five easy pieces. Yeah, uh, that was a good movie. Um, I have a question though for you, Adam. Okay. So essentially, you're, and I I think we've addressed, we've had some shows discussing oil-related topics, and you seem to be holding to the idea that peak oil is not, as they say, a oh dead theory um i think and, i think there is peak oil i think i think we've yeah, yeah i think so, it's a finite resource yeah. so that's not my question so my, my question is why it is that they're hesitant to revive it given all the pressures that are coming down pressures that we can get into that are hostile to the uh, petrol industry and petrol consumption. Wait, okay, two things. So who is they and what is it? So they want to revive it. So what what are you referring to? No, I'm saying, well, they, they as in the, the various pressures from above and below, mostly from above, okay. that are hostile to the petroleum industry. Like the Biden administration. Uh, why not? Well, yeah, and... Um, various other actors we can get into but yeah. my point is why not re resuscitate peak oil theory as an acceptable because it reached peak oil pardon the pun but reached its peak in the 1970s um, as a and i know that the current ceo of exxon mobil uh, made it a personal mission of his to stamp out uh, peak oil talk and they put a lot of resources towards hmm. developing ways to prove that it's not the case, you know, with the things we just discussed. But my question is why not resuscitate it as a justification for curtailing oil production hmm. in addition to their green energy uh, grift and global uh, warming? I, why, why do you think we don't see a resurgence of it? Um, 
It's a good Truly question. It, it's a good question because to, to me, yeah. I've always gravitated more towards that side of the logic of why oil is something to be worried about versus the climate change side. But I think they've done enough of a job. I mean, just to try to answer this, I don't really know, but I'm, I'm just trying to attempt to understand why this is the case. I think that the, the media organs and the scientific quote unquote establishment has done enough of a job to convince the general public that climate change is the thing to worry about rather than the depleting resources of a finite supply of something that we all depend upon as the reason to curtail the usage of oil uh, such that we develop alternatives. I think that's the primary logic going on there. I don't really yeah. know if I understood your question. I can give you my, that's my answer as well. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I do want to actually well, address that point, though, so because... My... Oh, go ahead. Yep. Well, I was just going to well, say... Well, um, this may take us elsewhere. Why don't you go first? Okay, yeah. So... I was just looking at this because this is stuff I, I, I genuinely want to understand. Not because I have some like weird agenda. It's just because I do believe that our current society, well, okay, there's that word, but our current civilization or way of living is heavily dependent on having oil. And if we don't have it, we're going to have to substitute for it or change the way we live. I mean, that's just, it's just physics. Like there's no way around that. And yeah, there you pe- go. Okay. So let me jump in there. Well, all oh, right. I, I was just going to add a, a couple of numbers though to prove, prove something here. So a lot of people yeah. will say oil is running out. Some people don't even know that it's running out or care. They just care about, you know, Greta Thunberg, which I could care less about. I'm more concerned about depletions. Um, but some people say that oil is not running out. And I, I just am not convinced of that argument. I mean, there's there's this nut job in Russia who like says that oil is like produced from the the inside of the earth, and he's got like uh, it's just I don't know. Their their science is bizarre sometimes, but um, I don't I don't believe that's true. Okay, I I could be wrong, but I don't believe that's true. Setting that aside, though, um, what I I do believe is you can still find oil in weirder and weirder places, but the facts remain. I talked about the energy costs of getting the stuff out of the ground. We can all look at the financial costs, but the energy costs alone ought to indicate that it's getting harder and harder and harder to do this. But not only that, and this is a number that is, I think should be scary to anybody. I had to double check this. If anybody's got a correction on this, please tell me I'm wrong. But I found this in two independent sources today that the, the current planet consumes roughly and at least 36 billion barrels of oil every year. Hard to really understand what that means, but go to the IEA. Um, they're pretty well-recognized international energy agencies, uh, reporters and stuff like this. Or go to the BP Statistical Energy Review. That's a good one too. But 36 billion barrels burned up every year. Now, even if oil is somehow magically produced in the core of the earth, we still need to get it out. And in order to replace that 36 billion that we burned up, it's there's no denying we burned it we we can see it as it happens we need to find in order to keep the reserves at a stable level we need to find another 36 billion barrels every year pretty basic math right well for the past 
five years, well, let's say one, two, three, four, five, six, for the past seven years, the global discoveries of oil and gas combined have been less than 36 billion. And not only that, but they have gotten to the point where last year it was the record low in 75 years for new oil discoveries to replace those 36 billion we burned up. Nick, guess how much oil we found that was new that we didn't know about last year. So we need 36 billion. How many do you think we found? 10. It's even less. 5 billion. So that's something, right? But it ain't 36 billion. So if we keep that up, and we've kept that up for the past seven years plus, and it's going down, if you look at the chart, it's like a steady downtrend. Uh, we're going to burn through Saudi Arabia, Russia, Venezuela, uh, the New Guinean Republic, whatever the you know crap they're finding in Africa now. It's going to run out if the trends continue. That, to me, is pretty hard to dispute if you just look at the facts. Maybe they're all lying, but I, I, you know, you find these all over the place, and uh, th- I think that one is is the big alarm bell. But anyway, just wanted to mention that while we're talking about uh, you know oil depletion and stuff like that. Gonna have to take a quick break here. Okay. Word from our sponsors, uh, the Seven <laughs> Sisters. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Okay, I'm back. So, I I want to provide my answer to the question I asked you, yep. namely why, if you can objectively see that there is in fact hostility. I mean, it's one of the most hated industries, uh, at least by a certain segment of the American population, and what you see in the in the media, and I mean. Co- some films come out about it. Oil executives are behind uh, every, you know, war, every upheaval. It's it's uh, greedy oil men who, by the way, are always Gentiles, right? Yeah. The uh, answer I want to give to why it is that you can't you can't start doing what you're doing, Adam, which is. Uh, Thinking about long-term solutions to large-scale problems that are facing modern uh, standards of living and organization of production, et cetera. So I would say the reason that they they don't want to they, they don't want to bring up something like peak oil or problems in the future as far as you know where is this oil going to be sourced from and stuff obviously you have the answer from the american right in the form of like the the so, drill baby yeah drill. sarah palin yeah but the real answer yeah the real answer is in to my mind is pretty obvious and namely that they're not interested in so- solutions that they're interested in a reduction of demand and that's where the global warming agenda comes in. I think it's uh, we're it's seeing that. more and more of it. I, th- I recently, think it's also especially. they want to control the freedom of transportation. I think they want to control the behaviors by taxing your behavior and monitoring your behavior. I mean, it, it, it global warming, climate change, 
is like yeah. COVID. It touches it, everything. This fits into a yeah, it fits into everything. I mean, that's the thing. If you know, they say they like to say that with a car you can go anywhere, but with a car you can only go anywhere if you have petrol for it. The point is, I want to make about who is pushing this. So I mentioned to you before the program, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the very same oligarchs who made their their money and established their empire on the basis of this industry are themselves the ones who are attacking it from the top down. It's the people like the Rockefellers. For example, the Rockefellers actually divested their oil holdings in 2016. <laughs> Are they still? I don't know if you know their their current their current portfolio, but are they still holders of uh, J.P. Morgan? Because I think, or Chase Bank, I should say, which merged with J.P. Morgan. Uh, Chase Bank was a Rockefeller company uh, in business, and I don't know if they're still involved in that. But banking, you know, it's a good business. <laughs> you know, it's been around for a long time, right? Longer than oil. But I don't know if you know if they're directly involved in that or other things. Well, but these these are the kinds of, I mean, it's the oligarchs themselves who are pushing these types of the global warming, uh, the the green energy, the like you will eat bugs and enjoy it type thing. I don't know how yeah. you're exa- how you make bug patties without petroleum if you need uh, petroleum <laughs> and the production of bug patties and silent green or whatever. Uh, I don't I don't think that these things are things that are really thought through because I think the idea. Is this we're at the parasite killing its host phase? Right? <laughs> yes. And you see similar things like with Royal Dutch Shell, which I don't. It's no longer Royal. It became like Shell, just Shell, when it merged because it was formerly Royal Dutch Shell was founded as a, a Jewish. It was a Rothschild operation uh, that was looking for oil that was had its end to prospect to bring oil back from the east from like Azerbaijan and Russia which I believe is the origin of the shell huh. because that's like found these I always thought it was uh, in places like Indonesia where the, the Dutch had uh, their empires and well later it was because that's what happened is the, the Jew it was the Rothschilds and the, this uh, Jew middleman merchant they had partnered with the royal family mm. the Dutch royal family Got it. to be able to then uh, get to the touchy Cindy's. Okay. Yeah. And so like recently they, they merged with uh, a, but I, I suppose just the city of London, really. They hold, yes. I think that the, the Dutch Royal family to whatever extent it's really the Dutch Royal family and not a shell. I couldn't help it. The shell company. And um, <laughs> versus the, uh, the, I think it's like 40% is held by basically city of London types. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, is that MI6 or finance Jews? I, I don't know. I haven't looked into the finer details of it because it's not especially important to me. These are just, they are what they are. They represent the same interests. And the, uh, well, recently spe- speaking had, of getting out of oil, kind of um, just to, before we move on from shell, um, they were in the news about 10 years ago, I think, uh, for a oil reserves talking about depleting reserves scandal where they were, I don't know if I want to use the superlative vastly, but they were overestimating by a large amount the actual amount of oil that most um, accounting and f- securities regulatory bodies consider reasonable. Uh, 
and and basically lying to investors that they had more oil than they did. Uh, and we can get I don't think we need to get into all the details, but just to throw that out there, they they had a they had an oil discovery problem or at least an oil reserve problem, just like many other companies. Well, and also in recent news, uh, if you've seen what's happening in the Netherlands recently, that's oh yeah, the farmers on point. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, don't you think? Yeah. Yes. So, in the context of them shutting down meat production of their own people in the name of fucking uh, like greenhouse gases or whatever. <laughs> Right. The, the, this is happening in the same time that like one of the main holdings of the of the of the cyst of the power structure in the Netherlands is uh, Shell oil. Obviously, they're saying like, oh, we're going to by uh, 2050, we're going to be they, they're saying the same thing as I think I mentioned earlier as Exxon Mobil is. And there was some court case recently where it was the the Dutch courts that demanded there some kind of commitment to re- reduced emissions or whatever. Mm-hmm. Obviously, no one is especially concerned uh, uh, with the third world. It's just about putting the squeeze on Europe and put squeeze on America. Well, okay. Major competitors. L- l- have you have you heard about Sri Lanka? What's going it, on there? That place has imploded. I have not. What is going okay. on? Okay, so they have been rioting basically since COVID started, uh, but to compound the the lunacy of what's been happening to just the regular people who live there. Um, the government, I think they just banned outright the usage of fertilizer, which effectively today is derived from petroleum. And it was one of these like eco moves, like in just these diktats from these stupid bureaucrats that don't actually have to feed themselves literally with their own labor uh, by growing rice what happened was they've uh, they've run out of food <laughs> because well guess what um, you know yields uh, go down by a lot if you don't fertilize your crops. I think they had like a forty percent drop in rice production, and so that's been a huge contributor to the the riots that have been going on over there. And it was it was again because you know oh fertilizer is bad because it comes from natural gas and. Uh, we want to fight Russia or something. I mean, because they sell natural gas. I don't know what the reason exactly was, but it, I think it was another example of like what they what happened in Holland, where they had that uh, either it was the EU or one of the the Dutch uh, government people, you know, directly like just targeted this segment of their population, which had this massive knock on effect, which uh, literally destabilized the food supply in Sri Lanka. And I think may, you know, impact or, or will impact uh, the Netherlands. But to what degree, you know, we haven't seen yet. But 40 percent. Imagine, you know, I mean, in Asia, like rice is a huge staple. I mean, they don't eat a lot of meat because they're very poor and they don't have a lot of land for feeding animals. So they, they just eat the, the grain directly. And so 40 percent drop in food. that That's a big number. Well, and what's been taking place in india for the past couple of years as well i mean major major farm protests major mm-hmm. crackdowns and they're trying to implement all kinds of uh, the counting measures 
for the vast hordes, the vast brown hordes need to be counted because that's the, yeah. the most fundamental thing that a state uh, and needs B- to Bill, do. Bill so Gates trying, has like, been a big, and stuff a big proponent of that for stuff Indian for population. probably 15 years over there. Not to get all conspiracy, yeah, the, but the, I mean, the, the, know, same the Indians are buying up the farmland yeah, yeah. in the United States. No, no, yeah. we can get, we need to get conspiratorial with this because that's that's what we're looking at here. Yeah, that, that is what we're looking at. It's, yeah, I, th- I think there is there is something to it. it. Yeah, what they're so. what they're trying to do, they want to transition. They want to to kneecap the ability of the white world to be self sufficient and to be at the mercy of whatever they are given from the third world. Uh, they obviously don't care about the the brown hordes because no one cares about the brown hordes. So it doesn't matter if like millions of them starve or commit suicide either. It's just they want to shift production away from Europe and North America, and they want to have a managed exports from the third world. Yeah, it, it, is what uh, is what they they seem to be going for, and this is their like popular. This is the this is the plan as it seems that they've been talking about for a while. And uh, yeah. like, and so with Exxon too, like, who owns Exxon? I mean, who are the largest institutional investors in Exxon? Uh, I I don't remember, or I I don't know at all actually. BlackRock and Vanguard. Oh, are they? Are they okay? They're they're big shareholders of most companies, I guess, these days. But in the documentary, which is it's not a comprehensive uh, <laughs> by any means uh, study of this company or or any you know company. I mean, you should always read and, and all that. But in that particular documentary, they had, um, and I've actually read some articles in like Forbes and stuff where they're they're talking about this too. But there's there have been these recently these big activist investors using the um i think it's the esg the equity social whatever the hell it stands for it's one of these like diversity inclusion things and it's basically it's investing in companies that they deem to be ethical in their treatment of social groups uh the environment uh their i guess corporate governance which you know i actually don't think is that horrible but I think it also contains therein, just like all these uh, NGOs that, you know, we're from uh, not the government, but we're here to help you, um, have usually very nefarious backers, or at least some of the time have nefarious backers, like the Open Society Foundation or even Bill Gates. Um, You got to wonder what the ESG agenda is in these big investment groups. And on this documentary, they had this uh, really metro looking guy wearing his like, gray suit and just I, I knew guys like this way too much when I was still in the cities and um didn't didn't like his vibe but anyway what, what he was saying was his uh like we we you know there there's no more denying it companies like Exxon they just need to be punched in the face they need to get it they need to get it man like it's all about climate now and I'm like all right um but he was a big shareholder and actually he um they led a hostile uh, board like battle where they effectively forced Exxon to start doing things like the sequestration of their carbon and uh, make these pledges for carbon neutrality and all that stuff. Uh, so I don't know if like quantitatively they're the, like a big shareholder, but in terms of like qualitatively, they're very vocal and annoying and they've obviously had a lot of influence over at least the public 
strategy of the company. So to, to answer your question and whoever that guy was, I, I should have the name of it. But if you, uh, if you look for some Metro dude who's complaining about Exxon, but also owns Exxon shares, that's the guy. The way I look at the oil industry, at least in America, and I, I have some, I do have some familiarity with this, is that it's it's very goyish, as far as the people who are involved at the production side. It. Yeah. Can I can I give you some uh, some background but, on the the CEOs? So the um, yeah the, the current guy's name is Darren Woods, and he looks like what you'd expect a guy with a name like that to look like. Um, he is an electrical engineer. If I'm not mistaken, uh, the, his predecessor, Rex Tillerson, gotta love that name, Rex. Um, he was appointed to the uh, White House. I think it was in the State Department, Secretary of State by Trump. Uh, but prior to that, he was CEO of ExxonMobil, and he was, I think, a civil engineer and a Boy Scout, and he was giving out um, these sort of like a corporate uh, attaboys to his. Um, his team in ways that people were comparing to like merit badges. Uh, so he's, he's really into scouting. Okay. Um, and then the guy before yeah, that, Rex. I mean, he's a member of the, the Texan race. <laughs> yeah. Right. He is. Yeah. And the guy before that was Lee Raymond, another very um, Gentile name. And uh, he was a chemical engineer. So these guys are like out of the 1960s moon program. Like you just, you see like their faces and like the way they talk. And it's just like they they would literally be in Houston, but not in like the oil side, but they'd be in like the mission control room. Like that, that's how I like to see how these guys are. It's, it's so hilarious to see like this. When you consider the ascendancy of Rockefeller, who was not Jewish, but uh, has since married into the Rockefeller family has, has been interbred with the Jews. Yeah, uh, you don't. If you see what happened, his ascendancy from uh, involvement in the oil, oil trade. I mean, if you're the Jew, do you ever want that to happen again? <laughs> well, and maybe that's you know what BlackRock and Vanguard and this uh, Metro investor are this is what all I'm about. At. Yeah, yeah. This is what I'm getting at, and they're not interested. The, the the international Jewish banking class is not interested in oil production for making money. That's like these Texans are. I mean, yeah. If your name is Rex, yes, you are interested in making money, <laughs> right? It, it's Damn a, straight. It, like, it's in your like yeah. You you bleed black. And <laughs> Tex Rex. <laughs> yeah, shit. So the way I I see the power dynamics at play is like oil. I mean, it's it's in many res- it's the master resource, and so control of it offers a lot of power, and that's what the the big people are interested in. Whereas the people who are just responsible for, for the production and the logistics, they're interested in making money, and that's that's what they're in it for. Whereas on the bigger picture, this is something that you can use to decide the the fate of nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no no doubt about it. No doubt. I mean, and don't you think it's interesting that these same people who made their fortunes on it are now the ones who are behind the top-down uh, pressure against fossil fuels? Yeah, and against energy consumption. Yeah, and never once were they interested. Was anyone interested? I mean, this, like I said, America was shaped this way: the, the interstate highway system, the, the way that cities were constructed. 
And then you throw in then the later 20th century race problems on top of this. I mean, no one's interested in solving this. No one's interested in how do you, okay, maybe the in the future oil uh, energy consumption has to go down. Well, how do you make cities more sustainable or, or rural towns more sustainable? How do you have production? How do you have jobs? How do you have life? <laughs> they don't want that. They don't want any of that. They want us dead. And the future that they want is uh, something that we could get into, which is uh, yeah. my favorite uh, my favorite dystopian film, which I wanted to talk a little bit about, because I just rewatched the first two Mad Max films. Oh, cool. And they were directly the result of the 1973 oil crisis. Well, yeah. That and George Miller's experience uh, seeing mangled corpses on the highway in, in Australia. <laughs> I've only seen uh, apparently the third one and the first one. Uh, I there's a black hole in my head about the second one. So you saw one and two. So you, you might have. Yeah, the third one's okay. Uh, I only rewatched it's the bizarre. first one. Uh, it has nothing. And the first really one is kind with, of like okay. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, the sec the second one is by far the best, but the first one, the first one has its own special charm. There's mm-hmm. a lot of really interesting details in the, in those films. And they're yeah. about, and we have this in common with the Australians too. Our relationship to the to the automobile and to petrol is very similar to the Australians. Yeah, I mean they have this vast, this vast landscape that, I mean, you need the machine, and it's oh, all yeah. tied together with, with violence. Like, there's a good scene in the beginning of the second one where, he's uh, collecting Max's scavenging some oil from a recently crashed machine and there's like blood dripping in the pan too. In the first film too, it's interesting that pretty much no violence really occurs outside of, outside of the machines. Huh? I, I, I just remember the cars being kind of cool. I don't know if those were Holden's. That was the uh, Australian manufacturer. Yeah, they they were. Oh really? Yeah, that's cool. They were for Falcons. Uh, okay. Most of them, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Holden is the Austra- Australian Ford, yeah. Okay. Um, I think yeah, it was GM, them, there were a lot actually, more bikes but, uh, in the first one. The first know. one was... Oh, Holden? I thought so, but I could be wrong. Yeah, regardless, it was Australian. That was like their, their badging down there. And well, they, the they were was, unique. The Falcon was Ford. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, don't don't let me derail. So I, uh, I that's a ba- basically all I remember. Well, Mel no, no, Gibson it's a, it's a film the, about the machine. Yeah. Yeah, I like the cars. So yeah, I mean, I, I just well, like, do you do you really think that that is that I can only go so far a plausible it, scenario? I mean, it is a plausible scenario, but do you think it's a likely scenario for what the world looks like in this uh, managed decline or decimation, whatever you want to call it, of? Uh, the, uh... No, it's not so much. So you mentioned horses earlier, yeah, and how they were supplanted by the machine, yeah. by the automobile. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I was going to say that the the greatest economic use of horses was not farming. The greatest economic, the most profitable use of horses was raiding agrarian cities <laughs> and taking their <laughs> shit. Yeah, but how do you grow all that grain with our current? Uh, uh... People complain. I, I well, cite Walmart. But people of Walmart, but it's like those people are not farmers anymore. Yeah. Well, that's the 
that's that's what it is. The machine is the horse. Yeah. And like he goes back to to being a scavenger, to being a raider. Yeah. To being uh, somewhere between and the blood is petrol because in the second film basically it's sort of a pseudo western where there's this town that has it's basically a refinery a little refinery town Mm -hmm. and the homosexual legions uh want to you know (laughs) raid it and max ends up uh, he ends up involved in this conflict in kind of a you know Toshiro Mafune Clint Eastwood sort of situation. But the point is, is like his, it's it's a return to bar- barbarism. I mean, and it's just done in a very good allegorical way, in the way that like history is forgotten. There's just a lot of neat details too, and a lot of references. Like there's a Seven Sisters. Uh, logo on one of the uh, petrol tankers yeah i should look up because uh, when he says that he's talking about basically the uh the seven big oil majors and i don't remember who they are unless you do nick but let me let me look that up um yeah i do they're like the anglo-iranian oil company right uh like bp uh gulf oil uh, the various standard oils, like standard oil, yep. California, standard oil, New Jersey, standard yep. oil, New York. Um, and, uh, did I mention mobile? Oh, and shell. Yeah. And shell. Yeah. I think the first, uh, the, the standards, the, so California is Chevron, New Jersey is Exxon and New York, I'm guessing is mobile, but, uh, they, they changed their names, yeah. you know, eventually. Yeah. It's some, yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah, but th- those are the big ones most people would know. Yeah, and and obviously the Anglo-Iranian oil is uh, British Petroleum. Mm-hmm. But I have great visions of the wasteland. I mean, it just it always inspired me as a as a kid. You know, I it um it's a, it's a it's a dream we can all aspire to. <laughs> no, definitely there, romantic. There's, there's their to idea the movie. of reducing demand. And then, yes, then there's the other idea of reducing demand. <laughs> right. Well, okay, let's let's talk about the one that gets, I think, honestly, the most publicity, which is the electric car. Um, people on here know I'm, I'm somewhat of a fan of Elon Musk, but um, I, I, I don't have to shill for him. It's, it's a thing that other major car companies are getting into now arguably because of Tesla, but it basically includes General Motors saying they're not going to make internal combustion engines in 15 years, Honda saying that in 10 years, BMW, uh, Mercedes all saying similar things. Um, it's, it's 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 a reality that seems to be happening. So I wanted to just put that out there as, as a point of discussion. Uh, what do you think about the electric car, Nick? I, I think it's kind of gay, but I also think it, it could, in another world, like be a legitimately good idea. It's just I don't think that you're solving the problem when you start talking about how do you power the automobile. It's how do you live in a way that is less dependent on the automobile, and that's a social question. Yeah, and that requires a, a pro-social order, which requires the removal of the parasite, <laughs> and it requires a, a totally revolutionary reorganization of life in North America. And I guess probably Australia too would be a very similar situation. Europe 
is different because well, you had civilization before. Similar in Canada. America only had civilization in the post-industrial world. Similar in Russia. I mean, it had a little, any, had little England yeah, in the Northeast. Yeah, but. any big country has this problem. Um, smaller countries are typically geared for their cities a little bit more efficiently, but um, but yeah, no Brazil, Brazil. I, but you know, Brazil's an interesting case because they actually, as I mentioned briefly before, their ethanol. Uh, industry actually is net energy positive and it, it's relatively economic given where oil prices are today to to farm their transportation uh, energy which is kind of cool yeah but they're gonna need like a, they're gonna need electric gyrocopters like in mad max 2 <laughs> because you can't just drive electric cars through the favelas uh that's true their their cities are a bit dicey and their uh, rainforests are obviously pretty crazy too but um i'm uh <laughs> i'm not actually super knowledgeable about brazil it's it's a fascinating place though so okay so so electric cars so you think it's it's sort of uh the the wrong solution to the wrong problem and uh it's a non-solution yeah it's a, yeah i think of it as a non-solution yeah i you know, uh, I, I think i'm a little bit more nuanced or a little bit closer to thinking it is somewhat of a solution but I, I hear what you're saying i do think it is a little bit um boring you know i i heard a really funny um quip about comparing formula e which is probably nobody's ever heard of that but or a few people have but i challenge any of the listeners if they if they know what formula e is before i explain it uh raise your hand in the comments section but formula e is formula one using electric uh propulsion and formula one is gas and it's loud but it's it's uh it's 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 cool it's it's effing cool i'm a i'm a big fan myself and i heard a really funny comparison uh that watching formula e is about as exciting as watching uh me drive a uh, electric lawnmower in my living room um you literally watch this thing and it's like ying 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 versus f1 where it's just you know you just hear that twelve thousand rpms and those guys going nuts and literal fireballs if they hit the wall uh at 200 miles an hour much more violence of the machine yeah it's the best it's the best and you're going to lose that when you put these uh electric motors in so but engineering wise electric motors i mean there's nothing wrong with them They're, they're actually quite impressive um, in terms of the torque output, I mean, everybody at this point probably knows that about, you know, acceleration on, on a Tesla is insane. Um, but, uh, personally, I like, I like the sound of a, of a big engine. I think they're really cool. Yeah. And, and engineering trade-offs, you know, are, are also there because lithium ion, um, is not going to give you the range despite you know incredible advances but still to this day they can't get you uh, with a trailer probably more than 100 miles versus a internal combustion engine probably can do maybe three to four times that uh, with a big diesel tank um, and then uh, you long-haul trucking because of the trailering it's just the same thing but um, you know for commuter commuter applications it makes sense you know 30 miles a day yeah you can totally get an electric 
But the, the also the other thing, just uh, supply chain economic wise, that is a little bit troubling about the batteries that we're currently using, which is primarily uh, lithium ion using cobalt, um, is that there's there's just not enough reserves of these minerals at current prices to supply the the projected demand. And so we're looking at a 5x in terms of uh, lithium, I think, for example, in terms of what we'd need annual production amounts uh, to satisfy current forecasts that are actually somewhat pessimistic forecasts. If you had optimistic forecasts, it would be even higher. Uh, and then, you know, it doesn't doesn't mean that we have to stick with the current battery chemistries. There's a lot of other types of chemistries out there like lithium iron, uh, phosphate is, is one that's catching on somewhat. Um, but the problem with that is it's much heavier and, uh, it, it just, when you add weight to a vehicle, you basically make it less, uh, less efficient. So they're, they're playing with it, but there are some uncertainties right now for electrification of the entire world. Uh, so here's my, here's my take. Like, Everybody, including Exxon, including Tesla, including General Motors, and should just try to come up with a solution or a, a set of solutions and and see what works. Because honestly, nobody really knows what the best perfect solution is right now. People have guesses, and many people are competing as to what that dominant technology is going to be. But the fact is, whether we like it or not, and Nick and I probably don't like it that much, but the, the reality is, and I've looked at the numbers long enough to be convinced of it personally, at least, is that this transition will happen, whether we like it or not. And this transition is not the first transition that has happened. Uh, mind you, we, we already mentioned, you know, the transition from horses to automobiles. Well, even before that, you know, we had, uh, well, or contemporaneously, we had coal being displaced by oil. Uh, for for ships, uh, you know, in World War II, for example, uh, and we had uh, well, nuclear power was also a big one that sort of got sideboxed for a while because of the accidents, but it's a promising, actually recurring theme that might be coming online, and even environmentalists are starting to support that idea. Um, and then we've we've transitioned from um, you know horses, animals to manually doing things to also uh, using wind sailing ships. Uh, whales used to provide much of our lighting, uh, energy basically in, in the form of uh, whale fats and, uh, candles and things like that. Um, and these things ultimately changed when, as far as I could tell, they were, obviously there was manipulations at the margins with embargoes and, uh, wars and, and whatnot, but prices generally dictate what technology becomes supreme. And I predict that as oil either runs out or people like the Biden people artificially attempt to make it more expensive than it is, as things like oil become more and more expensive, alternatives are going to take their place. I, I just think if you look at history over the past, you know, 400, yeah, uh, 500 I, years of, of energy history, to... that's what happens. So I don't see this as I think this is a common thing we run into here, Adam. It's, I, I do not see this as a technical or economic question. It is a political one. I mean, I think it's all of it. Do Americans need electric vehicles in order to these are all components. But I mean, do you need a, an electric vehicle to drive uh, five more miles down the highway? 
you know, no, that's usually not the, the reason you the get an electric. But of the American system. Yeah. No, you're missing my point. No, I'm not. I'm not. Niggers. I'm not missing it. I'm just... not just niggers, but just the, the assorted. It, it's not about like no one cares about niggers. It's, I mean, unless you have to. I guess it depends on uh, <laughs> if you can afford the price of gasoline, or if you can afford to live further away from your job. I mean, it's right, right. Like you say, the market dictated the the rise of the automobile and that's not true either i mean i, these I were well I, l- was, let's debate this because I, mean, I, yeah, I don't i don't agree uh, so go ahead explain to me why well the interstate highway system was not a market phenomenon yeah but the, the automobile was displacing the horse by probably 1920 or 30 prior to the interstate highway system the interstate highway system certainly increased the usage of the car I agree, but in terms of horses going away and being well, and, and pet it food, created the- it happened before the the uh, highway system. And and you know, Model Ts, for example, they were known for like I think they're called like uh, bouncing Betty's or something. I, I could be wrong on that, but they basically had to run over dirt roads because the infrastructure just didn't exist. It was basically you know for horses, and they had these wooden wheels that like that, that really would get stuck a lot. But even then, it because of the horse, because be, it was so annoying to have to, like New York, for example, had uh, piles of manure every day they had to cart off and do something with, that uh, the attractiveness of this new technology and at the prices that oil allowed that to be possible, it, it just, individuals chose to supplant their means of locomotion very quickly from horses to, uh, to horseless carriages. And it doesn't mean the government doesn't play a role, but I, I do think if you study other transitions, whether it be going from wood to coal in the iron smelting plants of England, uh, the same thing, they ran out of wood. And so what happened was, you know, that last tree got really expensive and it's like, well, fuck you. I'm not going to cut the tree down. So what they did is they started digging this stuff out of the ground. And then eventually it got so to the point where it was so expensive to pull it out that Thatcher closed all the mines and they started uh, importing oil probably from Canada or Australia or something. But it was um, economics is, is a recurring theme in, in everything I've studied in this. And I'm not saying politics don't matter. Um, and I think maybe to your point, it's sort of like yeah, but if the, the mindset but of the user the oil, is it, it can change. The, but the oil oligarchs played a major role in American politics. I mean, in how things yeah. were done. I mean, th- this. Yeah. But I mean, oil it, was also a global need for commodity a that was in demand. It wasn't just America. It, it's, it's seen throughout the planet. Yes. So I, I think there's something more to the fact that the oligarchs yes. in America wanted it to happen. I think it was the people wanted it too, that they liked this stuff because it, People like to drive. I mean, people like to, you know, turn the lights on, you know, for cheap. I mean, it makes sense to me. To me, that makes sense. I'm not trying to negate what you're saying, but I I don't necessarily think politics dominates everything else. I I, I don't necessarily think that. Well, um, I will say that I do like to drive my machine. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> Me too. But 
at the same at time. reasonable prices and i'm I'm getting less I, interested as the price goes up right <laughs> so that's kind of my logic here but right exactly buying another bicycle i have a bike i have a bicycle oh man you have no idea how efficient i am i i do not like to waste even at you know almost zero price people think i'm like some kind of like you know drill baby drill guy i'm not i'm not i you should see how I live, but anyway, go ahead. I just, these aren't like, this all exists within the context of the American problem and, you know, new technology. Sure. That's possible. But that implies that you live in a, under a regime that's interested in solving problems and not just putting the screws on you. And the thing about Mad yeah. Max, I, I didn't, so you asked like, is that a realistic dystopia? Right. And it's not so much that it's realistic, it's it's that it's set in a a world that was much like ours and that we're completely dependent upon this. And yeah. if there was one thing that would completely break America would be that. I mean, a, a true a true shock. Like it, it really like oil would. Oil is completely un petrol is unaffordable. Yeah. It would break it. Yeah, and that's the surest way back into barbarism, which is the setting of of Mad Max. Yeah, of the Road War. Yeah, so there's other there's other things that could be weather, yeah. but the way that America set up, how much of it was the results of, I guess, or you could say, as you're arguing, like organic forces, and how much of it was was planned to be mm -hmm. this way, uh, because various interests wanted it this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't is at this point neither here nor there because we're here now, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, if we're going forward, we need to understand those two components, and I, I think they're again, I think they're both relevant. Uh, to what degree is probably neither here nor there. Um, as far as you know, they're both important. I, I think they're both uh, pretty close. Uh, I, I would say they're at least 25%, if not more each. And then the rest of it, 50% or less is something else. But those are big components, whether it's the, the powerful players making plans versus the individual masses making, you know, in their own way, their own plans, whether I decide to drive today or take the bus, um, those are plans too. And, uh, you know, do the billionaire classes outweigh all of the little people added up? Um, sometimes it seems like that. And certainly in our political system, it actually does seem to be that way. If you look at, I've mentioned this a million times, but the uh, research, I think out of Princeton or Yale, I've confused them sometimes, but it was Gillens and Page that basically said that the voting records of the U.S. Senate, if not the Senate and the House, but at least the Senate, correlate almost perfectly with the desires of the donor class, which is basically the billionaires and the rich people. And it does not correlate uh, almost at all with the poor masses. So it is important, those big people. But I would say that those big people, uh, maybe not some of the recent ones, but a lot of them still to this day, still care about making money. It is somewhat economic. It's not just a, a hatred of one group or the other. Um, I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but I think a lot of these people are selfish 
monetarily and they they see certain strategies as benefiting them uh and maybe under a long enough time horizon even this political stuff would benefit them in their eyes monetarily maybe the rockefeller matters to billionaires uh well i think to the ones that earned it they it does or at least the ones that got it recently if you don't think any of them earned it um the the heirs to the billionaire fortunes probably don't care because they take it for granted but I, i'll i'll bet you people who didn't have that much money when they were just starting out don't take it for granted and i think it matters to them because they know i think it's like it matters poor. a lot to the millionaires who yes. are working in the industry yes or you know executives of the industry yes but back to my earlier point to the big players to real power it's not about that it's about it's about just that it's about power well Provided they keep their money. I, I don't think they'd be happy if they lost their fortunes. And I think they'd, honestly, I think they'd just take it for granted. Does that happen? I, when, do, when do billionaires lose their fortunes? Is that a thing that happens? Um, Seldomly, but yes, it does. Uh, maybe not <laughs> I mean, these. I mean, Ford, the Ford family, I don't yes. even know if they have a billion dollars. Um, the uh, Rockefellers certainly do, but the... I mean, yeah, I mean, sure. Look at the Forbes, you know, 400, whatever the, the billionaire list, like there's drop-offs for sure. Uh, you know, they don't go into destitution, but um, yeah, sure. People, a lot of these guys, they, their money comes from their stock. And so if their company takes a dive, and remember Enron, I mean, those guys were rich. Uh, I don't know if they're billionaires. They, probably you know, one or two of them. It's another be, similar you know. dynamic where you have, you know, you have, powerful connected Jews running running scams and you have these like goy face executives mm-hmm. who are just like simple and greedy yep. and buy into it and don't realize that they're the ones getting played yeah yeah but you're asking do people lose billions and I think I think the answer is yes I, I don't I, I, don't, I don't think billionaire to me is not a financial category it's, just, it's, just not. <laughs> it's I mean, a yeah, race. You can say they're rich because they are, but it's not. no. It's it's a it's a it's a relationship to power. Okay. Okay. Well, the way things are going, I don't even know if billionaire is going to be impressive. Might have to get into the into the T category. Well, the real measurement is what it's always been. How many slaves do you own? See, I, okay. Like, honestly, I, I don't agree with that. I, I think, yes, in terms of like raw, that's what power is, is the ability to influence people, right? But I don't think all financial billionaires necessarily care about people, especially the tech nerds. I mean, like they, they're, they're terrible with people. I think a lot of them, they care more about uh, making a legacy or making an innovation that, you know, their ego is satisfied by. Um, And I think the money matters a lot. But a lot of these companies, I mean, Facebook, you know, famously employed, I think they employ more now, but at their like comparative like valuation, let's just take Exxon, for example, because we're talking about it. Uh, the valuation of Facebook compared to the valuation of Exxon, when those two equaled each other, like Facebook was coming up and then it matched Exxon, 
I'll bet you that their employee count was probably not that much more than 5,000 people. Now, yeah, you could say they're slaves of the people who use Facebook, sure. But um, I'm just saying it's a little more nuanced. I, I don't necessarily think it's like, you know, some, uh, you know, share, uh, what, what the hell, the, um, the, <laughs> the Southern plantation model. I don't necessarily think that's, that's the goal of the uh, tech entrepreneur. I think some of them want to be remembered for cool things. They want to have mansions and dates with beautiful women, I'm, I'm sure. But um, I think a lot of them are, are genuinely like interested in technology and other things. Because uh, personally, like I'm, you know, I like that stuff. And it's not necessarily about how many people I can boss around. Um, so and I'm not a billionaire, obviously, but um you know, I think there's... I'm not, Adam, I'm not talking about employees. I'm talking about slaves. Okay. Okay. It, it, you're, but you're going to, you're using it very broadly because you have to, because I mean, you know, like literal slaves, it depends on your definition. And if you define it broadly, yeah, we're all slaves. But I mean, well, if that's, that's true, that's humongous, just, that's humongous. just history. Humongous. Humongous had, Humongous mm-hmm. had his war band, and he, they had their their catamite slaves. Yeah, large and a good number of slaves to accompany them and attend to them on uh, on their raids. Okay, so I get what your point is. I think historically, this is probably the common denominator of what powerful man uses to measure his power. Um, and I think it's a good rubric for historical comparisons. Um, I'm putting forward the basis of his power. There, there is a, well, you know, even in computing, for example, but it's like you have, (laughs) you have the slave, uh, server, uh, client server relationship. There's like nomenclature that actually was removed recently because of, uh, you know, uh, diversity hires complaining, but, Basically, um, the human, I guess my, my sort of point, my, my more uh, precise point is that the human has sort of become relatively obsolete as the horse became. And what the new slave class is, is basically these little blinking boxes and data centers, which what these tech companies are built upon. Because let's face it, uh, hiring a bunch of uh, computers which is actually the term given to uh, young women who used to work in accounting departments doing calculations for large corporations. That's literally what a computer used to be, uh, in some definitions at least. The electronic computers, what I'm talking about though, is that that version uh, is better than hiring Betty, who can do you know, her slide rule calculations as, as well as she you know, can, but she's still going to be a million times slower than that blinking box. And so the model that these tech companies are built upon is if you can come up with an algorithm or some sort of system that leverages the fact that you know how to write code that can then be automated, the automaton becomes the slave. And that is perhaps in agreement with what you're saying. But what I'm trying to put forward is not necessarily about people slaves, because I think a lot of the, the newer horizons are going to become much more automated. And I think we're already seeing that. I think it's somewhat undeniable. 
Um, I'm not necessarily welcoming it. I'm not really welcoming it, honestly, at all. But um, it's sort of hard to get around if you look at how the money, the big fortunes are made today. It's not, it's not industry as much as it in the traditional sense. It's more in the information organization industry, quote unquote, that uh, has just been factually extremely profitable over the past 20 years. So I, I guess that's my point. Not necessarily about human slaves. Maybe I should have born been uh, born Rex. <laughs> well, you can be uh, the Tyrannosaurus to the Rex, or the uh, I, I. I'm really bad. I, at, I just want my I just want my Latin. wasteland, man. <laughs> so yeah. I I didn't I didn't see the second Mad Max, but I think you've seen all of them. Is that is that correct? And then have you seen yeah, the Yeah, over years. I mean Okay. And then have you seen the newer one? I did not see that. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean okay. it's got So is there an arc? It's got some good spectacle to it. Is there an arc in that continuum of Mad Maxes that gives us a look into an area of the future that we perhaps have not explored or considered. Well, the thing was, it was set in a, dis a somewhat distant future, but it, really what George Miller wanted to set in was a much closer future. And the first one resembles that more. The first one resembles our world a lot more. It's not, it's not exactly the wasteland. It's just the slow deterioration of, anything resembling society and so it's like i mean the the police station in it is is absolutely hilarious it's it just looks like a bombed out building i mean nothing works the only thing that's going on is people are driving their machines yeah that, that's the only like substance to life and driving the machines and rape and violence and Max has in the first one, I mean, it's sort of spoiler, but I mean, everyone knows like his uh, wife and child get murdered, but that doesn't even happen until towards the end of the film. Right. Um, and that was his, that was like the, the one, you know, vision of hope for a future. And, you know, that's, that's taken away. And Max becomes one with the machine, one with one with the highway. And he has no other purpose than the, than the violence of the machine and the road and it's i mean the films are known for i mean they have pretty good stunts for what they are especially the first one being fairly low budget but it's and that's another thing we could talk about too when it comes to to cars it's like that is one of the most violent aspects of american life is the automobile yeah I mean, your average American hasn't seen shootings and stabbings, but they've seen probably everyone has seen at least one pretty nasty looking car wreck that probably no one made it out alive. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it is very visible. And I know that was George Miller was inspired in that way because I think he was working as like an EMT or something. Hmm. And he, he was in a situation where he saw a lot of saw a lot of really nasty car accidents. So, and it's sort of the 
it, it, the poetic basis to it, I mean, fleshed out a bit more. And the, the second one's a bit more developed in a lot of ways. Also, had more money behind it. Uh, character Max had already arrived you know, where he it takes in the whole first movie to get to. The second movie, you have the, the character. And then in the later films that we don't need to discuss at all, it sort of descends into the opposite of the the positive vision of the of the wasteland, namely the return of the war band <laughs> and the slow process beginning again. Uh, it turns into like a gynocracy. I mean, that's that the fourth film that came out in the recent years. That's the premise of it. So wow, they like a, doubled down on the Tina Turner character. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And in, in this case, it was Charlize Theron. Oh, geez. I don't know if she's worse. Uh, I actually never disliked Tina Turner, so probably she is. Um, but uh, that's interesting because, you know, we talk about it in these circles a lot where we, we think that women in civilizations societies uh, of plenty become more influential. Whereas in ones that revert back to barbarism and primitivism, it's generally assumed in our circles that men become more dominant. And it's interesting that these movies take the opposite tack. Now, actually, I don't think they're necessarily thinking about it that hard. I think it's just more of like the, the arc of our current iteration of society 7.6 has Charlize Theron uh, talking about how she's shockingly single while she's dragging uh, adopted children behind her and surprised. Um, and she's uh, paid millions of dollars a year that uh, nobody wants to compete with that and uh, doesn't see her as a good mother basically. But um, I, I just feel like that's the arc of our current society. But I, if, if we honestly looked at what happens when everything falls apart, it's usually not women running out there to fix the power lines and change the tires on the cars and uh, go muck through the sewage system that's backed up. It's usually guys who do that. Um, so I, I, I actually think that that arc of the story is somewhat ridiculous, actually, that they pr- project that in a place it, it of scarcity. George Miller trying to atone for the hyper masculinity of the first two films. Is he still involved? I mean, the first film, there's a scene where these. Yeah. He, oh, he that's was. embarrassing. He all of them. And he, I think that, well, like, so in the first film, the biker gang descends on this couple in a car. And I think they rape both of them, uh, which is a detail I missed in the past. But when I was watching it the other day, like, when Max and his partner come up, come upon, uh, come upon the scene. Uh, the dude is like running with his pants off in a field, like hysterical. Jeez. And last time he saw him, you know, he had his pants on. So, <laughs> uh, and then they get to the woman, and she's clearly been raped, gang raped, and like she has a, a a chain tied around her, like a leash. And the. The sort of optimism for the future is actually in the second one. It's in the form of of savagery itself because they have the, the turns out at the end like the narrator is the 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 kid 
the boy, the savage boy who's who's actually just like a dog. And Max is like a dog too. Hmm. He has a dog and his dog and him are are the same. They eat the same food and they they're they're very they're mirrors of each other. You know, Max is the dog in the second one he's the dog of the wasteland, sort of without a pack, wandering around, scavenging. There's a lot of careful attention to detail in the films, and then there's I mean, the first, like I said, was limited by what they could do, but in the second one, it's it's a very well, very specifically crafted film for like an kind of an action movie. I know that uh, the tone of our ending thoughts are typically pessimistic, but I hope we do not crash and burn. Um, I wouldn't mind a couple of uh, near misses and perhaps some of the enemies to uh, drive off of a cliff. I wouldn't mind that. But I do believe in civilization. Um, I don't necessarily think uh, anarchy is the final solution. I think it might be an intermediate one. But uh, I ultimately want to live in a functioning society and civilization. And I do believe that energy uh, is a massive component of that. I mean, we're never getting off this rock if we don't have lots of energy. If you look at what uh, it takes to push things into the air and then out of the atmosphere and into orbit, big time energy. Um, so I think if I want to impart anything or put forward a uh, for future work section for all of us, it is really to address the not only the uh, production of energy, but also the consumption of energy and how we and what what forms it, it takes. Uh, and I think it it's just it's indisputable that it touches everything that we do. And hopefully this show has uh, demonstrated that and maybe brought to light some uh, areas for further exploration. the whole thing is a complex topic and we were trying to focus on Exxon and we weren't able to really do a full history of standard oil because that's another that's a topic in of itself could do we discussed a long time ago we did an episode on the Iranian revolution and there's a whole history there to BP I mean if you did a history of each of the major oil firms you would get a pretty close to a good history of the 20th century itself yeah, definitely. BP is an interesting one. But uh, yeah, we, we obviously couldn't stick to just one company. It It's such a big, uh, big topic that Exxon inevitably will, will delve into many different areas. But I do think it is an interesting, like I, I didn't really uh, elucidate this that much, but I do think it is an interesting cut out from a prior era of America in particular where we talked about it briefly, but just the type of people who work there, it is an interesting example of one of those last industries that has not been financialized to the nth degree. It is a relatively speaking a domestic, um, even though they're at massive international operations, their Texas operations are quite impressive in terms of, heavy industry, which doesn't exist that much uh, anymore in this country. Uh, and so to me, it is a little bit of a nostalgic uh, throwback to a prior era. And and I do think oil's time is coming to a close, whether it's in the next 10 years or the next 50. Um, 
I don't know exactly, but it, it is a, a, a sunset industry. Um, I don't think we're going to lose all of it completely, but I think it's going to become much less relevant as alternatives are developed and as society and our world changes. Um, but as, as I've laid out the, the numbers, I don't think are lying in the, this stuff is just going away. So I think companies like that are also going to probably transition out or uh, go away themselves. Well, oil had its time. I mean, that's no doubt about that. And definitely the 20th century was, was the century of oil, but there's been more valuable, more valuable commodities in the past. And I think that they will return because as we see, it's always blood that is the most valuable. It's blood that makes all these things run. 